Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Awesome. Well, we have a two-minute warning here. If you're in the foyer, go ahead and make your way in here. Uh, we're going to start in just under two minutes. Thank you, guys. Good morning, church. Let's stand together to serve a good God, don't we? Oh, come on. We serve a good God, don't we? He's worthy of our praise this morning. Let's sing with everything we got. Little men, the roughest waters, I will go under.
thank you for your presence today. Father, we lay aside each distraction that's in our life right now. We're here to worship you, Father. We love you, Jesus. Holy, holy, holy 
Yeah. 
we have a lot of things even as Christians when we walk with God you ever have one of those weeks that just feels like it punches holes in you it kind of squeezes you and then at the end of the week you don't really like what came out of you and life can have a can have that effect on you sometimes and uh, it's times like that where we have to realize that we're not built on ourselves we don't build our, ourselves on, on us anymore. It's Jesus. And he walked down and he looked down on the worst part of our life, the most stressed version of you, the most inadequate version of you, and he wrote his name on your heart. And that's the name that we hope in, the name of Jesus. He gave us his name. He redeemed us. We wear his righteousness. We wear his sonship. We don't have to earn it. We can rest in it. And that's what we have in Jesus' name. We have a place with God, fellowship with him. He admires and loves us. He sees us as clean. We're the righteousness of God, the Bible says. And so I'm just going to thank him again. Lord, thank you for your name. Thank you for your name that's above every other name. You have no rival. No sin <laughs> rivals your name and what you've done for us. No struggle, no stress, no sickness, not even death rivals your name, Jesus. We thank you. We thank you that you're victorious and we stand victorious with you because we wear your name. And it's not anything that we've done. It's not anything we've earned or will ever earn. Even if we feel like we're doing good and then our week just knocks holes in our image of ourself, Lord. We don't carry our image anymore. We carry yours, Lord. We get to rest in you, Jesus. We thank you for that. Lord, I just pray that in your presence today, we would 
experience you. We'd be changed. We'd learn to build our life on you, not ourselves, not our behaviors, God, but our faith in who you are. God, changes from the inside out. We ask in your name, Lord. Amen. I guess take a minute and look at each other. Say, hey, who is that? All right, announcements, huh? So Tim and Lauren Chill. We're back. My phone's not on silent. All right, well, welcome. Thank you so much for spending this uh, Sunday morning with us. And if you're watching online, thank you so much. We hope, uh, hope that you're touched by the service we, we're streaming to you. And uh, we can't wait to see you. Uh, come visit us in person sometime. For those of you who are at home and can't be with us, we miss you. We love you. Um, it's just thank you so much for being here. If it's your first time, if you're first time guest, Okay, we have Connect cards. There's Connect cards in the seat in front of you and the seat back in front of you. And if you could just fill that out with as much information as you feel comfortable giving us, we just want to know that you are here and know a little bit about you. We're not going to bug you and bother you. Um, in exchange for that, uh, we have some free books for you in the back, but then we'd also like to send you something in the mail as well. And we want to thank you for, the, for your faithful giving during this time. It's been crazy. But you can give online through the app. If you don't know about our Church Center app, you can go to the App Store, both Android and Apple. It's called Church Center. And then you search for our church, Life Community Church. So you can sign up for events, all types of things. So we want you to have the app if you don't have it already. Or you can give at lifecommunitychurch.com slash giving as well. Or in the contribution boxes in the back. <laughs> so forgot. coming up. <laughs> coming up. <laughs> yeah. All right, so um, coming up, it's so there's a Propel uh, ladies meeting on Tuesdays at 6.30, and it's not too late to sign up. You can sign up through the church app, and um, they're going to be studying. There's a study by Christine Kane called Wisdom. Yeah. I can read, yeah. <laughs> just not very well. And then we have Harvest Fest coming up. We're still doing it. Yes. We're going to do it. It's November 1st, so it's the day after Halloween, and so it'll be Sunday night. It'll be here from 5 to 6.30. Yes, 5 to 6.30. We're super excited about it. We still need trunks, so you can help us out in two ways. You can donate candy, which is always super helpful, so if you're not comfortable or you don't want to do a trunk, we still need lots of candy, and then we, or you could host a trunk. And so you can sign up for to host a trunk through the app, the Church Center app. Um, if not, you can come see me and let me know you'd like to do a trunk, and I can get you signed up as well. Um, so, yeah, so let us know because we know a lot of people aren't comfortable with trick-or-treating this year, so we want to offer some an alternative for people uh, where they feel safe. We're going to do one direction. We'll have hand sanitizing stations, and it will be as minimal contact as possible, but while the yep. kids can still have fun and enjoy and still get to wear costumes and still have their yearly fun. So, and so that's the one thing. That's all we're going to do is trick-or-treating. Trick this year. So it'll be a little more simple, but we hope you'll join us, and if you'd like to host a trunk, let us know. Yeah, and then the, uh, the candy buckets are in the foyer, the big metal bins. So, anyways, uh, we want to welcome our pastor, Randy Hewitt. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Glad to see you. Yeah, it's just, we'll just, as the kids walk by, we'll just throw candy at them. And, uh, don't know how that works on television or whatever you call it. Glad to see all of you. And uh, 
I, I read this week that you're not supposed to ask people how they're doing. That uh, don't say how are you doing because that requires an answer and you really don't want to know the answer. <coughs> you know, because you, you, if someone was to start telling you, it's like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I didn't really mean that. I, I just meant hi. Uh, so, uh, so, but that's considered aggressive to say how are you doing. So, I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> so, how are you doing? Uh, so, it's, you know, this is just. Uh, this is just such, uh, I don't know the, the words that we can continue to use. It is unique, different, strange, crazy, uh, groundbreaking. Uh, it's just so, it's, it, it's such a challenge for all of us in so many ways. I'm, I'm always, I'm, I'm concerned I, I, as, a, as a pastor, I, I'm concerned uh, because I know there's a lot of people uh, that are really still very fearful. Uh, and uh, and I don't I, I think I, th- I don't think it's good to be afraid. I don't think it's biblical to be afraid. One of the one of the things that God says very often in the Old and New Testament is do not fear. And and so as Christians, God calls us. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have difficulty. It doesn't mean that people don't die. That Christians don't die. It doesn't mean bad things don't happen. But it means that it, <laughs> the worst thing that can happen to you is that you will spend eternity with God. I mean, the very worst thing that can happen to you is that you get your inheritance sooner than you thought. So, you know, so God, God wants to help us deal with fear in this time. It's a fearful time. I think the media plays on fear. I think they, they want you to be afraid uh, because it gives them more control. Uh, I don't really know what it is that they want other than power structures just tend to want power. Uh, so... So we're talking about the last two weeks, we've been talking the last several weeks about the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God looks like, how do we, what is the kingdom of God? We are. We are in the kingdom, and the kingdom, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in you. So we're, we're living in the kingdom. The kingdom is not something that is coming, but it's something that is here. When... <laughs> Jesus brought, when Jesus came, Jesus was saying, you know, you know what you've been looking for? I'm here. <laughs> so he, uh, he introduced the kingdom. And so we, we tend, we struggle with it. It's like it's this esoteric, you know, out there, not real thing. But you have to understand the kingdom of God is more real than any kingdom of the earth. Because you think about, just think about even the, the, the kingdoms that have oppressed Christians through the centuries. They're gone. The, the Roman Empire that was so strong fell. I mean, kingdom after kingdom has fallen to the real enduring kingdom, and they all will eventually. So, so last week we started talking about the five things the five things that Larry Hurtado, in his book, uh, Death of the Gods, uh, he enumerates these five things, these five things that the, the first three century Christians did that changed their world. Now, what I think it's interesting for us to think about, and, and I titled the sermon, Turning the World Right Side Up. If you remember early on they accused the apostles they said these men have turned the world upside down 
And so when we, when we faithfully follow Jesus, we turn people's lives. Was your life turned around when you came to Christ from upside down to right side up? So that's what, what happens. So we're, we're turning the world upside down. But for the first 300 years, the church begins to impact. At the end of the first century, they, they're not really exactly sure, but they feel like there's like 100,000 Christians. of the, the first century, at the end of the second century, there were three, two to three to 400,000 Christians. At the end of the third century, there were six million. They were at least a tenth of the Roman Empire. Constantine made Christianity the, the, the religion of the state. He, he was endorsing it because it was, a, it was a good move for him, because he needed them. <laughs> he, he needed them on his side. Uh, and so there's a lot of times what people do today. Uh, and I'll try not to talk uh, politics, but it may sneak in. So uh, if it does, go ahead and forgive me in advance, okay? So here's, here's some characteristics of the, of the early church, the first century church. They were multiracial and multi-ethnic. As a matter of fact, race had very little impact in the early church. If you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, they don't hardly even talk. Race is not the issue. What is the issue is Jew and Gentile. The big divide in the New Testament church is Jew and Gentile. And so that is the struggle. And so in the early church, one of the things that's incredible is that so you've got in places like Rome and Ephesus and Philippi and Galatia and in Jerusalem, that nearly all of those churches began as as Jewish gatherings. Paul went first to the synagogues where there were where there were God he would Go to the Jews and build a, and, and get a group gathered, and then he would start reaching out to Gentiles. So for the first time, the early church was this gathering of uh, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, the masters and their slaves, variant, former pagans, Jews, male and female, different socioeconomic groups, rich and poor. This, this had never happened in the Roman Empire. Is that this, these people that would, whose lives would never have intermingled and never had mixed, now they're gathering together early on Sunday morning because Sunday's a work day. They're gathering early on Sunday morning together and worship and sing and commit themselves to following Christ. Because they'd of 10 could read. The Jews were more likely to be able to read than the pagans because they had scripture to read. Uh, uh, very few could read, so when they would gather together, not everyone could read. They didn't, they didn't have a, a Bible. Uh, so they were reading letters from Paul or from James or from John. Or from, so they were reading letters. So they were gathering. So this, this was this unique community that was gathering together in the name of Jesus. It was, it was different. It was, it, was, uh, it was unique. So the early church was multiracial, which, which was not even hardly noticed to the degree that it was multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic multi, uh, levels, and multi-generational. I, I think 
now here's my belief. I'm old, so probably I, this is the, I feel differently about this. Churches need to have every age group in them. Because young people need the influence of old people. And old people need the influence of young people. We need each other. And to, it's, so what we tend to do, what we tend to do, if left to our own devices, we gather in homogeneous groups. We gather in like groups. We, people of our same socioeconomic level, people of our same experience, people of our same color. Well, that's just our natural. We, we need each other. We need the diversity that God called us to be. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to be gathered around the throne. And he wants us to learn how to do that now. So, so this is the challenge. We want to we walk in you know, this, this great level of freedom that he's called. So the church is multiracial and multiethnic. I don't want to re-preach. I, ha- I just got through two points last week. I'm not careful. I'll just redo them again and just do two points again. Uh, uh, <laughs> another point I made last week was whatever d- divisions exist today, we must work to bring them into submission to, to Christ because our witness depends on it. Our ability to, to, for the world to believe that Jesus was sent by the Father depends upon, Jesus said, I pray that they may, may be one so that the world will believe that you sent me. It's imperative that we operate in a level of unity, uh, even though we don't all, we're, we're diverse, we're different, we're not the same. We want to operate in that level of unity. Uh, to work on them. Not based on our political party or based on our identity in Christ. The second thing is that they were highly committed to the poor and the marginalized. Uh, there, there were poor, and it was, it was normal to take care of your poor. Whereas it was normal to take care of, if you had family that were poor, if you, if you had people in your life that were poor, you took care of your tribe. You took care of your people. But the early church was taking care of everybody they could. <laughs> they, they reached out beyond their circle and their group because now, now because of the, the way the church is structured, now everybody is theirs. Rich, poor, black, white, brown, oriental. That's improper, right? Uh, Asian. Uh, they're, all, they're all one in Christ. And so now their, 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 their base has expanded to people that are reaching out, out to. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we'll reap if we don't grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people. But especially those who are of the household of faith. He said, you know, if, you're gonna, if you have limited resources, you want to reach out to those people that are closest to you. But then also you want to do good to all people. You can't help everyone is the reality. There's... There's always more uh, poor everywhere in every time than there are resources. Jesus even said, the poor you'll have with you always. It's just the reality. But that doesn't mean, well, you know, just throw up your hands. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. So you don't, you don't do that. What Galatians is saying, do good to all men. Help everybody you can. You can't help everybody. But what if you just helped everyone you could help? What if you, then you had that impact? See, God, because what God wants you to do, how God wants you to, 
here's, here's the problem. God wants you to help the poor invest it himself. I, our way, our, our American way of doing it is giving money. And that's, 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 a, that's a good second choice. What God wants us to do is give of ourselves. In other words, he, he would rather us invest in the lives of some. What if you, what instead of just giving somebody money, what if, what if you said, okay, this is, this is a family, or this is a young couple, or these, these are some people that, that I, I, I'm going to build a relationship with. I'm going to make an invest, a relational investment, and that may involve money too. That I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help a, this person or these persons so that we, we're investing ourselves. We gave of ourselves. Uh, that's often a term that is used by Paul. So the New Testament church just shocked everybody because they helped everybody in need. Uh, it, it surprised even, even the pagans. Julian, who was the son of Constantine, who renounced Christianity and was a pagan, he tried to destroy Christianity in the Roman Empire uh, and restore pagan worship, worship of the, of the, the Roman gods. Uh, tried to restore that. And so in the two years that he was emperor before he was removed, uh, but he, his, his, he remarked this, that the radical Christian practice of caring not only for their own poor, but ours as well, is both offensive and attractive. <laughs> he said, it offends me because they're taking care of people that we should be taking care of, uh, so those are the first two things I talked about last week, that, that they, they were highly committed to the poor, they were a diverse group. The third thing is this, this is so, this is so different that this is one of the things that turned the world up, right side up, uh, almost set upside down. They were non-retaliatory, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but Rome is an honor culture. Most cultures in the first, second, and third centuries <laughs> for a long, long time, they're honor cultures. And an honor culture is an eye-for-an-eye culture. It is, you hit me, I hit you back. You hurt my family, I hurt your family. So what was different is that the, the New Testament believers, the early Christians, were notable that if you attacked or killed them or their families they did not organize retaliation to get revenge. Why did they do this? Because Jesus told them to. They were following the example of Christ. Jesus, you know, Jesus said, you know, I could call for an illegals and just wipe all you fools out. I could, but I'm not going to do that. Then they saw Stephen. They hear the story of Stephen who who is, is, is stoned because he is giving the testimony of Jesus Christ. They physically took stones and killed him. And they saw that as he's being stoned, he is praying for the people that are killing him. And then, then thousands more, by, it literally became by the thousands, it became noted that as they were being burned at the stake, or being killed by lions, or being uh, used as fodder in the gladiatorial games as entertainment in the, for the first 300 years, or as they were being, as Nero burnt, dipped them in tar and lit them in, in his torches to light the roads near his palace, uh, all kinds of ways 
that uh, Christians were tortured, that as they were experiencing death, that as they were experiencing death, they were praying for their persecutors and forgiving their persecutors. So this whole, the concept is that uh, you turn the other cheek. Who said that? Well, Jesus did. So they, this, this community is following Jesus. One of the things that I want to point out about this is that the early Christians weren't trying to change their culture. They were just trying to follow Jesus. They didn't think, you know what? We need to change this. And it, what's interesting is that you may not have thought about this because I hadn't thought about it, is that uh, Augustus was the first one to do away with voting on the emperor. They voted on the emperor. Roman citizens voted on the whole offices within areas of Rome, if you were a Roman citizen. Paul was a Roman citizen. Jesus never talked about voting. I'm not saying that voting is not important. I'm not telling you not to vote. I just want you to think about that. Jesus, Jesus didn't believe that the kingdom was going to be built politically. Now, I, I believe you should vote. And I believe you should vote for biblical values, which makes it difficult to vote. Because no... This is the way to make 100% of the people mad, okay? No party represents effectively the kingdom of God. Some, some aspects of it, there's some agreement in both parties. Believe, I, know, I know if you're a Republican, it's hard to believe. I, you think that the Democrats are all you know, uh, hellbound. And, and if you're a Democrat, you pretty much feel the same way about Republicans. So what you have to choose to be is a libertarian and hate everybody. Uh, I mean, it's a struggle. So, uh, so they, didn't, they didn't talk about, they talked about being good citizen, but the fact that we're not going to change the world politically. We need to do everything we can. We need to be good citizens. I'm not against it. You need to vote. You need to vote your conscience and uh, then, then pray about who you voted for and then repent. Uh, <laughs> Because it's not going to work the way you want it to work. But anyway, uh, you do need to vote. I do encourage you to vote. But we need to recognize that the real focus of our lives is to live the kingdom. Your life has an impact by not trying to have an impact. Your life has an impact by not trying to impact, but by trying to follow Jesus as closely as you can, if you'll do what Jesus has told you to do, then that creates within us the ability to, to draw people to Christ. Not because we're trying to draw people to Christ, but because we're trying, to, we're trying to, to stay as close to Christ as we possibly can. And in that, it to Him. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies... And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. So he's saying, you know, what is God like? People shake their fists at God every day in anger and disbelief. He still loves them. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, 
Paul, who was an enemy, he knew all about vengeance and hate. He hated the early church. He was trying to destroy the early church. He said, bless those who persecute you. Now, this is not a theory. You know, he's not writing this in a vacuum. He's not just writing this because it sounds good. He's writing this to people that are being persecuted, and some will die for their faith. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I mean, we can't even manage to drive to work. Uh, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We have the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back for evil to any, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. But, beloved, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You think, you think, that sounds like fun. I'd like to put burning coals on my enemy's heads. That's not what he's saying. He's saying by, by loving your neighbor, by by doing good to your enemy that you cause their you cause their their conscience their minds to be ignited that they realize that the way they're acting is wrong you show them their wrong behavior by your right behavior burning coals when it said don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good first peter 2:21 now these are no so paul's writing this to romans uh, not too long after this paul is is uh, killed by Nero in Rome somewhere around 65 to 68 uh, AD and uh, at at about the same time Peter and and Paul are both killed at about the same time by Nero Uh, so Peter writes this you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you are to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He uttered no for a political viewpoint. Because you have to recognize there's there, that there's probably a little diversity in the body of Christ. And just think, have, have you changed your viewpoint at all? In your life, have you ever changed your viewpoint? So you, don't be willing to burn a bridge over something that, that in 10 years you wouldn't even agree with anyway. So, so you just don't burn a bridge. You know, the Bible says speak the truth in love. Any jerk can speak the truth. It it takes no finesse to go around telling what your version of the truth. Now, what you need to often recognize is what we often call truth is opinion. And opinion and truth is not the same thing. You can say, well, this is what I believe, but it doesn't mean that it is the truth. You can say, well, I believe that two and two is 12. You can be fully convinced in your own mind that two and two are 12. You can believe it, but it is 
wrong. It's not true, unless you're doing some kind of math, new math, you know, that I don't know about. So we, we want to be aware how we want to love our neighbor. We want to not, not be revenge-seeking people. The, the early church, all they had a lot of reason to hate Rome, didn't. They had a lot of reason, but instead, they, they, they spoke the truth, but they spoke it in love. Okay, number four, they were strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. Christians were dead set against abortion, uh, which was less common because it was, it was dangerous. They didn't have, you know, the medical technology we have today. And infanticide but not merely in principle, not just in idea, they found and took in infants who were thrown out to die, in other words, people who, didn't cho who chose not to have their children, and oftentimes in Roman culture, the children that were chosen that were unwanted were females because they, they weren't going to inherit and they weren't. So, so females were less valuable, just like in, in when China limited had their child they it was females that suffered the most so much so that that they created a crisis that 20 years later there were no females to marry the males because they had killed large portions of them same thing is true in in Rome so they, they found these infants that were going to be, they were going to die because they, they called it exposure. So they would take them to a, a dump area or the edge of the city to a forest area and the wild animals would just come and eat them, destroy them. Or they would be, they would be picked up by slavers and raised by slavers would then put them, you know, make them slaves as they grew up. And they didn't have to be very old before they started becoming slaves. More than 500,000 new slaves were needed in the Roman Empire each year, and as many as 150,000. Jesus said, let the children alone, and don't hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So they were picked up, they were, they were raised, they were sold to others and enslaved as prostitutes in brothels. Uh, the early church was pro-life. It didn't recognize graduations of human life. So they rescued, what they did is they just rescued as many children as they could and they raised them as their own. They became their children. What was interesting, uh, it created an abundance of females in the church. People discarded females, so it created an abundance of females in the church. So many men in the first, second, and third century, if they wanted to get married, they had to become Christians. Because Paul's letter didn't allow Christians and non-Christians to marry. So Christians and non-Christians would not marry. So if they wanted to get married because there was a shortage of females in the Roman Empire, they ended up marrying Christians, and they had to become a Christian to marry a Christian. Uh, which, is, which is one of the ways how the church grew. Uh, so we, you know, the, the, great, the great evil, so the, the, the evil of abortion is not new, is it? 
Did, did you know that abortion is the leading cause of death in the world? 42 million babies yearly in the world. 42 billion. It is the leading cause of death. It's ahead of, it's almost, <laughs> death from all other causes is 48 million in the world. So, of the, you know, almost 100 million that are going to die in the world, it is, <laughs> it's by far, it's almost as much as every, all the other, other leading causes. Uh, 800,000 in the U.S. alone. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm not surprised by those numbers. I'm surprised that God has not judged us for such death and destruction. If the blood of righteous Abel is crying out, to God. <clears throat> How much more? 42 million that has been piled upon number upon number for so many years. I think the state of our culture, where it is and where it is going, is not going to get better. It's going to get worse unless until the Lord returns. I, th I think two things are going to happen. I think the church is going to get better and better and the world is going to get worse and worse at the same time. So a lot of things, it's, it's going to be hard to ever change, even though Roe versus Wade is a very horribly written law from what legal people say. I don't know. I can't judge it. But what I've read, it was, it was a poorly made decision. Still, culturally, we're so far behind the dime, I don't believe it will change. But there are some things that can be changed. We need to work at rolling, rolling back the time when abortions are legal. One of the things we sometimes make, as the mistakes we make as Christians, is that, well, if we can't do away with it completely, I'm not, that's a compromise. I'm not going to take that. So, so instead of uh, getting a little bit, we try to bite off total change and we lose every time but what if we could say i'm going to take a little tiny bite we're going to take that and then next year we're going to get another little tiny bite and we're just and it seems like the enemy's really good at that the enemy's really good at playing the long game and we're not we ought to be the best at it europe is super liberal and europe is liberal in so many areas but America is way more liberal in light of abortion than Europe is. In Europe, it gets pretty difficult to have an abortion after the first trimester. In, in virtually every, every, every country of the European Union, it requires counseling or a waiting period. And abortion... All, which in America now, we can, you can have an abortion the day before a child is to be born. Oh, I guess you could have it on the day that you're supposed to be born, right? It's horrendous. So one of the things I believe where we should be working every way we can is every, just rolling that back 
that we should really work towards the viability of the feast this day. That we're at, at least when the at least when we say this is this child is born, it's living. Now we believe that life begins at or, or not probably not everybody here, but I believe that life begins at conception. So we believe it. You know when does life begin? So we just. I believe that we as Christians need to work in every way we can to roll that number back. It'd be great if we could do away with it, but, but it'd be more likely, more, much more likely we do away with it if we rolled it back to shrink it than to the, the horrible place, the horrendous place, the indefensible place that it is now. Uh, the, number, the, the fifth thing is, um, and I went past, so i got to hurry up. They revolutionized the sex sex ethic how they viewed sex in the church the roman world viewed sex merely as an appetite much like today i mean but even worse the roman world was worse than than our current culture its its purpose was to serve the social order married women could not have sex with anyone but their husbands but men, all they wanted, as long as it was someone of less honor and class, because it was an honor-based society. So men could have sex with prostitutes. They could have sex with slaves. They could have sex with courtesans. Uh, they, they could have sex with children. Paul led, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, now you gotta, when Corinth was the Vegas of Rome. Well, actually, nearly all the cities in Rome. They were so vile that you, wouldn't, you would say they were all the... I mean, Pompeii, if you, if you go to the ruins of Pompeii, you'll see that Pompeii was just a giant brothel. Coastal city, giant brothel. 1 Corinthians 6.15, Paul is speaking to this new ethic that Christianity is different. He says this. He's speaking to Corinthians. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. May it never be. Or do you know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Because there, there was the, this Gnosticism was growing, and Gnosticism says, well, the body and the spirit are separate. So what you do with your body, you can do something bad with your body, but it doesn't really matter because your spirit's been saved. So what you do with your body doesn't really count. You can do something bad with your body. Paul said, no. No, that's, no, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body's not for you to use the, the way you want to and say, well, you know, I'm covered other ways. Do you not know the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. For the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Free, flee porneia. Flee, this is like all the spectrum of things that are sexual sins. Every other sin that a man commits to is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now concerning the things which you wrote, so this is a question. Paul is answering a question. He's not saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He's not saying that. He's responding. They ask the question. So, so it's, it's good for a man not to touch a woman? Paul says, no, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, 
And all, likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife dies, does, which they would have said, what? The wife has authority? Because women didn't have any authority. So he says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul says, sex is not for self-gratification. Self's primary role is to strengthen the covenant relationship between a man and a woman. It's, It's not just for gratification. Now, he doesn't, say it's not, it's, he doesn't say it's not for gratification. He says it's not just, that's not its primary purpose. So Paul is saying in this verse, listen, I know that the culture says that women must have sex exclusively with her husband. But I say to you that a man must have sex exclusively with wife. What Paul is saying to this, listen, I, you know what you all say about you know, women need to be chaste and pure and holy. He's saying, Paul is saying, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. <laughs> what's, good for, what's good for women, what's, res, what's restrictive for women is restrictive for men. No sex with prostitutes, no sex with slaves, no sex with mistresses, and absolutely no sex with children. The Romans called sex with minors, and by the way, you need to understand, this is the next thing they're working on. This is, this is the next norm they're working to destroy. Biblical norm. The Roman called sex with minors child love. And the early Christian church created a word that had, did not exist before, and called it child abuse. The word actually means destroyer. So this was how, this was different. It took it took the power of sex away from men and away from the upper class. Because when when sex is abused, it is women and children that suffer always. We have horrendous sex trafficking, trafficking that has been funded by the pornographic industry. Women suffer most in a gratification-driven culture. This was empowering, this was, this was empowering to women. The New Testament culture is not repressive. The biblical culture, you know, they will say, oh, they're going to repress you. No, it creates healthy, a healthy sexual relationship. The very best thing, the very best thing, you believe in God or not, the very best thing in your life is to not have sex until you get married. The very best thing. I got some head nods. Thanks for that. No amens. Okay. Well, I'm out of time, so let's stand. I got to quit. I went over. God wants to use you.
He is using you. And he will use you. And where, where he's placed you, he's placed you strategically. He's before ordained good works that you should walk in them. He has strategically placed you where you are in your life at this moment so that you can bring the grace and mercy and the love of God, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ into that situation, that you can live for Jesus. And all you have to do is just try to stay as close to Jesus as you possibly can. He's already, you know, this is not hard because Jesus is working on that. He's, he's, he's drawing you in. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And in that, if you'll say, I, you know what, I, I want to live for Jesus. I want to please Jesus. And in pleasing Jesus, your life then becomes a testimony. Jesus said this. He said, you'll be like a, a city set on a hill. You'll be like a light in a dark place. You'll be salt. You'll be life. If you just, if we just say, I want, I want, I want to be like Jesus. I'm going to try to do what Jesus told me to do. Not out of legalism, but out of joy. Because what he done for me. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, to be close to you as possible, to do what you called us to do, to bloom where we're planted, to live for you with joy and grace and forgiveness and mercy right where we are, Lord, that we could see the world turned right side up because it is certainly upside down. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. I love you. I love you. Hope you have a great week. Hope the Cowboys do better this week.